What was life like for Jews during the Revolutionary War? What role did they have in the war? In this episode, we discuss the history of and lessons from the Jews of the American Revolution. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. A little bit past 7 o'clock p.m., August 29th, 2023. Where was George Washington at exactly a few minutes past 7 o'clock on August 29th, 1776? Exactly 247 years ago to the, to the minute. Where was General Washington? So if you hang out here at the Kolel, you'll know he was in probably the darkest moment of his entire professional career, including the harrowing winter at Valley Forge. It is my favorite story of the American Revolution, is the story of George Washington, the Battle of Brooklyn. If you recall your American history, you'll know that in the springtime of 1776, General Washington had successfully thwarted the British and drove them out of Boston. And they set sail, and they set, the British sailed north to Nova Scotia. And Washington correctly predicted that the next move that General Howe and the British would make would be to try to lay siege on New York, New York City. He correctly anticipated that that would be the British next move. So, after Boston, getting of the summer, Washington travels south to protect New York City and its matchless harbor. He divides his troops, some are in lower Manhattan, to try to protect the bay, and they set up a battery, guess where, for those of you who are from New York, at the battery. Isn't it ironic and fortuitous? But he also really put the bulk of his troops in Brooklyn Heights. You know Brooklyn today, if you know, Manhattan, if you know New York City, think Park Slope, Brooklyn Heights. And that's where his main fort was. And he was waiting for the British to come. Indeed, while he's in Brooklyn Heights, on July 6, 1776, that's when he hears that the United States has declared independence. Washington was not there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He was in New York. And sure enough, the British land in Staten Island. And that's what they use as their base of operations. And Washington, again, correctly anticipated that the British were going to set sail their entire force tens of thousands, along with many Hessian troops, those German mercenaries, and that they would invade Brooklyn from the south. He anticipated that they would invade Brooklyn from the south. Now, in 1776, to get, if you again, if you know the geography of Brooklyn and New York City, so Staten Island is over here, and let's say, you know, Manhattan's over here and Brooklyn's over here, he anticipated that they would go like that. And that's what happened. And on August, I want to say 24th, 25th, the British land their entire force at what's now Gravesend Bay, Sheepshead Bay, that area. My grandparents, blessed memory, used to live right there, Bay Parkway, where it hits the water. That's where the British landed. And there were three, back then, Brooklyn was basically a forest. There were a couple of little outposts and settlements. And they would have to travel north up Brooklyn from the southern part of Brooklyn, up north to what is now Brooklyn Heights, where Washington was stationed with his roughly, I think, a little bit less than 10,000 troops. That was functionally the entire colonial army. 
there were three main roads to get from southern Brooklyn to northern Brooklyn. One was the Gowanus Road. For those of you who are from Brooklyn or from New York, you'll recognize the Gowanus. There was, that was all the way to the west. Sort of to the middle, you could take the Flatbush Avenue. Or if you'd go a little farther east, you could then take, I believe, the Bedford Road. These are all streets that literally are the same exact, exact road that they are today. And Washington sent garrisons, he sent troops to monitor what would happen with the British go up either one of those three roads. And of course, what did the British do? They opted for option number four, which Washington didn't consider. They went even farther out east, and they took the little known road called Jamaica Road. It's literally still there today, Jamaica Avenue. And they caught Washington by surprise. They caught Washington by surprise in Brooklyn Heights, and before he knew it, Washington was surrounded. On three sides, in front of him and to the sides, were the British. Behind him was the Red Sea. Not quite, but close. What was behind him? The East River. He was completely surrounded. And he realized that on August 29th, 1776, exactly 247 years ago to the day. And as night began to settle in, much as it is right now, George Washington, General Washington, held a council of war to try to figure out what do we do. They decide the only option is we're going to make an emergency evacuation. Think Dunkirk. We're going to try to somehow get our troops, leave all of our supplies, but let's live to fight another day. Let's get across the treacherous East River back into Manhattan. And so they do. They tried. Of course, things got delayed. Plans didn't go according to schedule. And the story should end as follows. Just for curiosity, I was curious what time is dawn on August 30th, tomorrow morning, in New York. It'll be the same thing in 1776. And the answer is, if you're familiar with halacha and Jewish law, there's something called mishiyakir, which is the earliest time you could put on your talus and villain. Mishiyakir tomorrow is at 5.30 in Brooklyn, which means at 5.30 in the morning, it's, still, it's pretty bright. You could see what's going on. And all night, Washington is trying to get his troops across the East River, but doing it in absolute silence. No one was allowed to talk. The oars that they used to row the troops across the river had to be wrapped in cloth so as not to make any sound, because if they hear, if they make any noise, it'll alert the British and they'll just open fire. Now, again, back then, they usually, they didn't fight at night because it was pitch black. And if you'd start shooting, you might kill your own people. So the minute, the tradition was they didn't fight at night. But as soon as day breaks, as soon as it's dawn, alos hashachar tomorrow, daybreak is 4.57 in New York. As soon as the sun rises, or even before it rises, it's dawn, you can see what's going on. British are to open fire. And Washington was running behind schedule. The story should end like this. It's 4.57, 5 o'clock, 5.15, the British see what's going on. They see Washington struggling, trying to get across the East River. They open fire. They wipe out three-quarters of the rebels' army, George Washington is hanged from a sour apple tree, and that's the end of American history. That's what they don't teach, because that didn't happen. One of my favorite lessons that I love to share is the story we read in Parshas Chukas, a very, very cryptic verse. Story about the Jews is towards the end of their travels in the desert, the 40th year, and the verse tells us, Es vahev besufa ves hanachalem arnon. 
Because of this, it's written in the books, the chronicles of the wars of God, as Vahiv Besufa, as an Achalim Arnon, we give gratitude and thanksgiving as Vahiv, the present, the gift, the God that you gave us at the Yamsuf, the Red Sea, and on the Nachal Arnon, on the streams of Arnon. Jews sing out praise, and the verse then continues, Oz Yashir Yisrael, as Ashira Azos. Then the Jews sang out in song, Aliv Er, Enu, enu La, come up, O well, call out to it. Well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people excavated through a lawgiver with their staffs, a gift from the wilderness. What's happening over here? Very cryptic verses. We know, Esvayiv Basufa, God gave us a gift at the Red Sea that we're familiar with. The gift of splitting the sea. We were in crisis. The Jews were literally back to their walls. God splits the sea. A miracle, salvation. It was a gift from God. What's this gift that the Jews are thankful for at Nachal Arnon, at the Arnon stream? What happened? And just to highlight, the verse seems to imply as Vayiv Besufa ben Achalim Arnon. There was the gift at the Red Sea. There is the gift at the stream of Arnon. Almost as to say these were equitable. These were like similar types of moments of salvation. Interesting. The language of the song that the Jews sing out is Uz Yashir Yisrael. The exact, almost virtually the identical language of the song at the sea. Uz Yashir Moshe, Sashir Azos. Virtually the identical language. What happened? at the streams of Arnon. And the Medrash Rashi cites it, tells us a remarkable story. The Jews were passing through a very narrow gap in the mountains. It's the 40th year in the desert, on their way to Israel. And the Jews are walking through a very narrow gap in the desert. And their enemies, Canaanites, yeah, Amalekis, different enemies, are up on high on the cliffs of this pass. And the Jews, innocently, unbeknownst to them, they're just passing through the bottom. And their enemies are up top with boulders, rocks, arrows, slings, ready to just pounce on the Jewish people from the high position and just, the Jews will be sitting ducks. And as the Jews' enemies are waiting, anticipating the Jews to, to pass before them, waiting in those cliffs, the Medrash tells us a, a miracle took place. The cliffs gave each other a big hug. The cliffs moved into one another, squishing, as it were, the enemies of the Jews. And then the cliffs receded back to their original place. And the Jews didn't know what happened. They didn't know. They were just on their way. And they walk through this gap in the mountains. And when they get to the other side, they see their enemies dead. And they retroactively understood what had happened. They're able to infer based on, I'm not sure what, but they're able to infer what had happened. And they realize this is a tremendous miracle, a salvation. Az Yashir Yisrael. The Jews call out and sing praise. As Vayiv Besufa, the gift that God gave us at the Red Sea and the gift that God gave us here at the streams of Arnon. Beautiful. It always struck me as such an amazing thing. Here are the Jews emotionally, their sense of gratitude. We all know and recognize we've been talking a lot. If you've been coming to the Kolel, we've been talking a lot about gratitude. Come to our new class, 715 on Mondays. We've been talking about gratitude as we study the laws of brachas. How's that for a shameless plug? 
and we talk about gratitude. And we get it. Imagine you're the Jews at the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, you're in terror. Your enemies are all around you. And the sea splits. It's amazing. Gratitude, appreciation. Thank you, God. But think about this second miracle. The Jews don't even realize. They didn't see it. They didn't experience it. They just learned about it. They functionally read it from a book. They don't have that emotional experience of the salvation. It's functionally like they read something that happened in history. It may as well have been 100 years earlier. Yet they are so in tune with their feelings of appreciation and gratitude that it's equivocal. It's the same type of appreciation. Thank you for the gift of the splitting of the sea. Thank you for the gift of the streams of Arnon. And it always gave me such inspiration. You know, here we are in 2023, 247 years after Washington was encamped in Brooklyn Heights. Washington doesn't win that battle. If Washington doesn't get out, the future of the United States of America does not look the way it does today. And who knows what kind of government, what kind of country we would be living in. Maybe we wouldn't be able to have a group of Jews meeting together to get inspired in a shoal. In a, maybe it wouldn't be permitted. This is an anomaly in the history of humanity that we have such freedom. And we need to take that, we need to take it, have a lot of appreciation for the freedoms that we have today. But that's not, and we, Thanksgiving, we have to have appreciation. We have to thank God. Thank you, God, for letting us. We are the absolute minority in the history of the United of, of Jewish history to be living in the 21st century United States of America. The freedoms that you have, that we have, are unparalleled in the history of the persecution of the Jewish people. And we have to have tremendous gratitude. But we also have to have gratitude not just for the things that we experience today. We have to have gratitude for the things that happened 247 years ago. Things that we didn't even experience. Things we just read in the history books. Because if not for what happened 247 years ago on August 30th, as Washington couldn't get his troops across, if not for a miracle, we wouldn't be here today. Because you see, as Washington, as the sun began to rise... At 5 in the morning, tomorrow, 247 years ago, and Washington's troops were not across the river, totally exposed, guess what happened? Totally unexpected. Fog rolls in. A thick fog you couldn't see a foot in front of you. Buying Washington an extra two hours. Critical two hours to get his troops across the river. The fog lifts at 7 in the morning. Washington is the last soldier across, and the British can't believe their eyes. They let him get away. We're going to talk about the Jews. That really, were there Jews there with Washington? I don't know. It's Brooklyn. you got to imagine there was some Jews. <laughs> Maybe they had bagels that morning. I don't know. Let's take a moment and talk about what the Jewish experience was like during those years. We gave a class not too long ago about the Jews in the colonial period, Jews of colonial America. And we talked about back then that in the colonial times leading up to the revolutionary period, there were five major cities that had Jewish, significant, any kind of Jewish community, meaning they had a synagogue. There was New York. There was Charleston, which was actually the largest Jewish community. Savannah, Philadelphia, and Newport. Now, right before the start of the, right by the revolutionary period, a new city had emerged. A new city emerges in, uh, with a Jewish congregation. A new city emerges, Lancaster. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Why Lancaster? Of all, I've been to Lancaster, tiny town. Why is there a shul, a synagogue in Lancaster? And the answer is, that was the western frontier. 
and Jews would always be going as far west, manifest destiny, as the country would be expanding. By 17 in the 1770s, Lancaster was as far west, right in the Alleghenies, I believe. Right there, that's how there was a Jewish community. Jewish life, as we pointed out during this period, there were no rabbis yet. The first rabbi wouldn't, join, wouldn't make it to the shores of the United States of America until 1840. Intermarriage was high. There were roughly maybe 2,000, maybe 2,500 Jews in the entire United States. Um, was there, there was discriminatory legislation. Were, were the Jews, were there any discrimin, discrimination against the Jews? There was, it did exist in the colonies. However, it rarely limited the Jews' right to work or worship in peace. Uh, indeed, Jews enjoyed far better conditions in the American colonies than in most areas of the diaspora. Now, there weren't rabbis yet in the United States of America. However, there's one of the most fascinating people. There was an itinerant rabbi, a rabbi who was from Israel, who kind of was going through the United States, spent a couple of years in the United States, raising funds for the city of Hebron in Israel. And this was an Orthodox rabbi who looked the part. We talked about, in one of our previous classes, back in the 1700s in the United States, there were no rabbis. Each congregation was led by the Chazan. The Chazan did not look rabbinic. He looked ministerial at best. But there's this itinerant rabbi, Rafal Chaim Isaac Karigal, Rabbi Karigal, who looked like an old-school Orthodox rabbi with the frock and the long coat and the hat and the whole thing. And it's an amazing thing. He wandered throughout the United States raising money for Hebron. And as a matter of fact, he befriended a one Ezra Stiles, who was the, um, he, Ezra Stiles was the, I think, the first president of Yale. And he taught, Stiles is a significant person in American history, he taught Stiles Hebrew. As a matter of fact, Stiles wrote a translation of the Old Testament. He actually wrote a translation of Rashi on the Chumash. There's a famous story, it's an old legend. Ever, ever hear the legend, the story that Napoleon was once walking on Tisha B'Av and he heard a bunch of Jews crying and he walked into the synagogue and he said, what are you guys doing? And they said they were crying over our temple that was destroyed 2,000 years ago and Napoleon was very moved. That story never happened. It, don't think, there's no historical evidence. Very doubtful that, that that happened. But I'll tell you a different story that did happen. Ezra Stiles went into the shul on Purim and he saw Rabbi Karigal and he describes... Rabbi Karigal dressed in a red garment with the usual phylacteries and, I don't know what that is, and his talus. He wore a high fur cap, had a long beard. He has the appearance of an ingenious and sensible man. Then war breaks out. 1776, the American Revolution. So you mentioned 2,000 Jews. Who team did they fight for? Who did, what did, who did the Jews back? So John Adams famously would say, when rec recalling what the general population was like in 1776 during the American Revolution, he said they basically fell into three camps. You had the loyalists, people who were loyal to the crown. You had the rebels, the, the people who were, you know, fighting, the patriots, fighting for independence. And then you had the monkeys in the middle, people who stayed neutral. Many, many people stayed neutral. Like, uh, not our problem, whatever. <laughs> let's, let's stay out of this. And, of course, the Jews would also fall in... There were Jews in all three of these categories. However, the, the data seemed to suggest that Jews disproportionately sided with the rebels. Probably at somewhere between 100 and 200 Jews fought for the, for the patriots, which is a, a, a huge percentage. And as we talked about, you know, New York, after Lincoln, after Lincoln, Washington escapes, New York would be a haven, would be the, the home base, as it were, for the British. It would be a, um, a loyalist hub. So Sheriff Israel, the shul that was there, they basically those, that community 
all the, all the patriots had to flee town, as well as in Savannah and Newport. Those congregations really, really got squished because Jews tended to side with the patriots. So those, commun those communities um, you know, were on the run. Now, I want to talk for a few moments about some of the more interesting people, some of the more interesting people, noteworthy people during this period, during the American Revolution. Probably the most influential Jew of the time was, as we mentioned, the Chazan of the, the, the synagogue in New York, Sheriff Israel. He was the leader of the Jewish community. His name was Gershom Mendes Satius. If you were at our previous class on the Jews of colonial America, we briefly talked about him. Gershom Mendes Satius um, was a staunch patriot. And according to Cyrus Adler, writing in the Jewish Encyclopedia, on the appearance of the British fleet in New York Bay in August of 76, Satius preached a sermon in English in which he feelingly stated that the synagogal services on that occasion might be the last to be held in the historic edifice. He can tell that they had to leave. And he would leave New York. He would take the Torah scrolls with him. They went up to Newport, and to first to Connecticut and then Newport, but that wasn't safe. And he would continue and ride out the war in Philadelphia, really rejuvenating the congregation in Phil the Jewish community in Philadelphia and Mikveh Israel, where he would ride out the war, with one notable exception. He would smuggle himself back into New York because someone needed, there was a wedding. They needed someone to officiate. So he snuck in to officiate at Samuel Lazarus's wedding. Who's Samuel Lazarus? Lazarus is a significant name in Jewish American history because his granddaughter would be none other than Emma Lazarus. Isn't that remarkable? Emma Lazarus, of course, writes the poem that's inscribed on Lady Liberty, on the Statue of Liberty. After the war, interesting, Satius would return back to New York City and he was among the 14 clergymen honored to be chosen to participate in George Washington's 1789 inauguration ceremony as President of the United States. He would also become elected to the first board of Columbia University. Now, it's a remarkable thing. This is so, this is beautiful. I love this story. So Satius has to leave. Look, the shoal's got to have Davin in the minion. Someone's got to lead the minion. Someone's got to lead the services. Satius is gone, the majority. All right, so a Hessian troop, some of the Hessians, remember if you recall, the German mercenaries who the British hired, there were a couple Jews there. They needed a minion, so they davened and cherished Israel. They ran the shoal. War ends, 1783, there was one guy. His name was Alexander Sons. He was a soldier. He was fighting for the bad guys. He's like, I like it here. He stayed. <laughs> Not all Jews fought for the good side, for the good guys. We mentioned, it's an important thing. What's the oldest synagogue in the United States of America? Everyone always says the Toro Synagogue. So of course the truth is, as we pointed out, that's the oldest building. The oldest congregation was Sheriff Israel in New York. It still exists today. It's still running. The Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in New York City. The Turo Synagogue was the, in Newport, Rhode Island, is the oldest building, but it's not the oldest congregation. What, why is it called Turo? Because the founding family was the Turo family. One of the Turo... Now, interesting is that Satius' brother, Moses Satius, would be the Chazan there, and we'll talk about him in a few more minutes. But the, one of the founding presidents of the Toro Synagogue was one Isaac Toro. Isaac Toro sided with the Loyalists. And after the war, he had to flee, I believe, to Canada. A lot of the Loyalists, people who were loyal to the crown, well, the Patriots won. It's kind of clunky to come back home and say, hi, guys, how y'all doing? It was a little uncomfortable. Many of them fled. So lots, many of them stayed, but several of them fled, including Isaac Toro. 
A different fellow named Isaac Hart was a Jewish, a Jewish loyalist shipper who fled to Long Island, was killed by patriots. A fascinating Jew during this time is a fellow named Mordechai Sheftel, fascinating person. He was, he was a merchant, lived in Georgia. He's an observant Jew. We have a letter of him, actually of his father, before the war, writing to people, I guess, on the other side of the pond, and I think, and I'm assuming, in, in East, Eastern Europe, about getting tefillin for his, for his son, um, Mordechai. Mordechai Sheftel would end up becoming the highest-ranking Jewish officer in the, to serve in the Revolutionary War. He would become a colonel. When the British attacked Savannah in 1778, uh, Sheftel took active part in the defense of Savannah, and he also used his own money to help protect and, uh, and, and to raise arms. He was captured by the British on the jail ship that he was imprisoned by the British. He refused to eat pork that was given to him due to keeping kosher. To persecute him further, a lot of the British ordered that his cutlery be smeared in pork grease, knowing that he would refuse it. Interesting, the highest, highest serving ser soldier. Another fascinating person who would serve in the uh, Revolutionary War was a fellow named Jonas Phillips. In July of 1776, Phillips, this is amazing, he wrote in Yiddish to a relative and business correspondent in Netherlands. He wrote in Yiddish. What are you going to write? Speak in Yiddish. He discussed the conflict with Great Britain, talked about some secrets and troop movements. He wrote about the Declaration of Independence, and he sent it right in the mail. Now, back then, the British are intercepting all the letters. They're just going to read it. How could he send it? These letters about troop movements, Declaration of Independence, sensitive information. Of course, the British couldn't write it because he wrote it in Yiddish. They couldn't know. They had no idea what he was writing. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. He had a couple of descendants. A couple of, one of his descendants would be the governor of South Carolina. He would have a descendant that would be um, on the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice Supreme Court of South, Car of South Carolina. And he had, would have his grand... One of, he had a prolific family. One of his grandchildren was a fellow named, if you really are in tune with your American Jewish history, the name might ring a bell, Uriah Phillips Levy. Uriah Phillips Levy is a significant person for two reasons. First of all, you'd be the first Commodore in the United States Navy that was Jewish. But secondly, fascinating, is Monticello, the priceless estate of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was broke. He died a poor man. And essentially, his estate, it got repossessed functionally. And Monticello was going to be dismantled. It fell in terrible disrepair. Private ownership, it was... Levy, who apparently had some money, he bought Monticello and he restored it and donated it so that you can go visit it today. Has anyone been there? I have not. It's on my bucket list. I got to get there. All because of this fellow. Now, a remarkable, remarkable thing about this fellow Jonas Levy is um, Benjamin Rush. You may, if you study your American history, Benjamin Rush is very, very significant. He was one of the signers of the Declaration. He was a physician. He was buddies with Washington. He was part of the Hevra of all of the founding fathers. He'd be like a founding, I don't know, brother. He was one, one step behind. Wasn't quite on the same tier as Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, but he was one step behind these guys. Signed the Declaration of Independence. He was fascinated by Jews, as many people were back then. Many of the elite were fascinated by Jews and Hebrew. And he took particular fascination, and he befriended Jonas Phillips. And Jonas Phillips married off his daughter. Jonas Phillips, his daughter got married. Benjamin Rush wanted to see what a Jewish wedding was like. And he wrote a 
touching letter that survives till today. At one o'clock, the company consisting of 30 or 40 men assembled in Mr. F Phillips' common parlor, which was accommodated with benches for the purpose. The ceremony began with prayers in the Hebrew language, which was chanted by an old rabbi. It wasn't a rabbi. There were no rabbis. It probably means a chazan. And in which he was followed by the whole company. As I did not understand a word, except now and then in an amen and in a hallelujah, I... <laughs> How beautiful is that? My attention was directed to the haste with which they covered their heads with their hats, put on their yarmulkes, as soon as the prayers began. Guy started saying a prayer, everyone puts on their yarmulke. And to the freedom with one, with some of them conversed with, oh, listen to this. And to the freedom to which some of them conversed with each other during the whole time of this part of their worship. Jews were talking during davening in 1776 too. Nothing has changed. As soon, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Benjamin Rush. As soon as these prayers were ended, which took about 20 minutes, a small piece of parchment was produced, written in Hebrew, which contained a deed of settlement and which the groom subscribed in the presence of four witnesses. In this deed, he conveyed a part of his fortune to his bride, by which we sh she was provided for after his death in case she, she survived. What's that? The kasuba. The ketubah. The ceremony was followed by the erection of a beautiful canopy. Chapa composed of white and red silk in the middle of the floor. As soon as this canopy was fixed, the bride, accompanied with her mother, sister, and a long train of female relations, came downstairs. Her face was covered with a veil, which reached halfway down her body. Another prayer followed this act, after which the rabbi took a ring and directed the room to place it upon the finger of his bride. Kedushin. The groom, after sipping the wine, Shavabrachos, took the glass in his hand and threw it upon a large pewter dish, which was suddenly placed at his feet. Upon its breaking into a number of small pieces, there was a general shout of joy and a declaration that the ceremony was over. If you've ever been to an Orthodox wedding, that is exactly what it looks like in, you know, today. Isn't that just amazing? Benjamin, Benjamin Rush, this is a, a very, very significant person in American history, writing about the, the wedding of Jonas Phillips' daughter. Lieutenant Colonel, Salisbury Frank, Lieutenant Colonel Salisbury Franks was another interesting person who fought during the American Revolution. And he would actually become the ADC, the aide-de-camp, which means you're kind of like the right-hand man of the director, the person in charge, the commander of West Point. Now, West Point nowadays is a military academy. That's the United States Military Academy. But back then, during the Revolutionary War, West Point was a strategic fort. And the commander of that fort was a very significant person. And, and Salisbury Franks was the right-hand man of the commander of that fort. Does anyone know who the commander of that fort was? Say it loud. Very good. Benedict Arnold. And it was, that's when Benedict Arnold became Benedict Arnold, is he gave the plans of, um, of West Point to John Andre and the whole story. He was on, you know, right there. And Franks had nothing to do with it. But there was always this cloud the shadow. Now, maybe he knew. Maybe he was part of the Benedict Arnold thing. And Franks, who ended up fighting for Washington, Washington asked that he join him. He asked General Washington, he said, court-martial me. He demanded a court-martial so that he can clear his name, which he did and was found innocent. Francis Salvador is a wealthy Jew in Charleston community. He was elected as a delegate to South Carolina's Provincial con uh, Congress. Francis Salvador was Jewish and would be the first Jew elected to public office in the 13 colonies. During the war, he fought for the good guys and be the first Jew killed in the Revolutionary War. Now, there's one person who I didn't mention who may have been Jewish, 
Very, very significant. Would certainly be the most significant person on this list. And of course, he was Alexander Hamilton. You all should have been at our class about a year ago. We gave a class, was Alexander Hamilton Jewish? Was out, now it's possible for those who didn't make it about a year ago, we had a whole class dedicated to this topic. Was Alexander Hamilton Jewish? The answer is a definite, probably not, but possibly yes. <laughs> Highly doubtful. You can, if anyone wants to, a recording, please see me. I'll see you. It's on my podcast. Everyone should know. Jewish History with Rabbi Nachal Matt. There's a podcast available wherever you get your podcasts, or a lot of these lectures are available. You can listen to that and all the different elements of, of Hamilton. Certainly Hamilton, what is for sure, is Hamilton was definitely very involved. His, he was educated uh, in a cheder, in a Jewish school, as a youngster, and he definitely had an affinity for the Jewish people. There's no question about it. And I... I shouldn't say it, but I say it anyway, but I don't think she minds. I have a, someone very, I know very, very well who is a direct great-grandchild of Alexander Hamilton absolutely is Jewish. She converted. <laughs> but she is absolutely a direct, direct descendant. Her middle name is Hamilton. Unbelievable. I think that's just the coolest thing in the world. But certainly when you think of Jews during the, Rev the American Revolution, we think of one person. If you've studied this topic before, there's one person who is probably the most significant, might not be the most influential, but certainly the most significant Jew of this period, and that would be Chaim Solomon. Now, I spent too many years living in Queens, in New York. Unfortunately, I have to go back, I mean, fortunately, I have to go back to New York tomorrow for a wedding. That's a nice thing, but I'm not a big fan of New York City. It's dirty, congested, and the people are grumpy. But while I had to suffer through my time living in Queens, I lived in Flushing and Kew Gardens Hills. And in New York, there is no real estate. So if you have a little piece of grass about that big, they park a sign on it and they call it a park. That's how New York works. So where I lived when I was in New York, there was literally a triangle as two streets intersected. And it's, you know, not even, it, it, it's a piece of pavement, I don't know, maybe 15 feet big, it's tiny. And they put a little sign on it, and they call it Chaim Solomon Square. And there's a little plaque talking about Chaim Solomon. Who was Chaim Solomon? Chaim Solomon was a Sephardic Jew born in Poland. What's a Sephardic Jew being born doing in Poland? The answer is, is after the Spanish Inquisition, many Sephardic Jews we've talked about found their ways, wandered through Europe, and indeed there were a couple of Sephardic Jews in, in Poland. In he would eventually emigrate to the United States, and he became very, very successful financially. And in 1776, he was arrested as a spy. The British pardoned him, but detained him for another 18 months in a British boat. And he served as an interpreter for the Hessians. Um, he eventually would get out, and he'd become a spy again. And he worked with one of Hamilton's closest colleagues. There was a fellow in New York City, which again was a, was a British stronghold, but there was, I believe it was a bookshop, and in that bookshop, the owner of that bookshop was actually a spy who Solomon worked with. That spy was a very close friend of Alexander Hamilton and has by far, without question, the best name in all of American history. Hercules Mulligan. That is a name, folks. Hercules Mulligan was a significant person in American history and Chaim Solomon worked with Hercules Mulligan uh, as a spy. And from the period, and he was caught again, Solomon was caught again, was convicted and, and sentenced to death, but somehow he escaped. And he helped finance the war. And significantly, the most um, important impact that Solomon had was at the end game of the of Revolutionary War. If you study memory of American history, in 1783, um, 
Cornwallis of the British makes the fatal error of deciding he's going to ride out the fall in the Virginia Peninsula in the town of Yorktown, right on the James River. And that was a big, big, big blunder because strategically, he basically trapped himself in. And Washington, when he learned that Cornwallis had decided to hunker down in Yorktown, he immediately prayed that the French would send their armada, which they eventually did, with Comte de Grassi would send his armada to block in Cornwallis. He couldn't get out of the Chesapeake Bay, so there's no way out via water, and it's basically a peninsula, the Virginia Peninsula. And Washington, who is still in the New York area, sent all of his troops down to lay siege against Cornwallis. We know the end of the story. The good guys win. Cornwallis surrenders. And the victory at Yorktown ends the Revolutionary War. The problem was, is Washington, throughout the entire war, struggled. There was no money. Again, the United States didn't exist. It's 13 independent colonies, loosely, poorly connected by the Articles of Confederation, which basically really did not give any ability to tax. And Washington's troops were broke. They didn't have supplies. And they were sick and tired of fighting and not getting paid. And Washington was out of money, and he couldn't get his troops down over land to block in Cornwallis. He just didn't have money. He estimated it would cost about $20,000, which back then was probably the equivalent of like, I don't know, $50 million, a significant amount of money. Washington didn't know what to do. And the story goes, it's probably true, he said, get Chaim Solomon. And Solomon funded that expedition of the checkmate to end the Revolutionary War, and that could not have happened without Chaim Solomon. He was a hero. You talk about gratitude and appreciation. The United States never paid him back. How's that for ingratitude? His, he died at a young man in his mid-40s, and his, children, his widow and children were, were um, penniless. Historiography for a second. Jews have tried to turn Chaim Solomon into like a little bit bigger of a person. He was definitely influential, definitely significant. The story that I just told you is basically... I didn't make too much of it up. It's, pre <laughs> it's pretty accurate. He wasn't, you know, he didn't finance the entire American Revolution. That's not what happened. He was significant, and he definitely deserves his place in history. But in the early 1900s, really in the 1800s, when Jews were looking to sort of promote themselves and turn themselves into like, look, we've done so much for this country, they put Solomon really on a high pedestal. And now I guess he's not quite on the pedestal. We'll give him a tiny park in Flushing, New York, in Queens. After the war, what happened to the different communities? Some, some of the communities, Jewish communities, really took a slide backwards, specifically Newport and Savannah, which were port towns. The ports were basically shut down during the war, so Jews had to find different types of commerce. So Jews, you know, and then after the war, so the Jews had already figured out other professions. After the Revolutionary War, there was still hostile, Shortly after, there would be the quasi-war with, with the French, where there was basically a naval blockade, and those, the port, the shipping industry was not really a big industry, so this, the communities of Newport and Savannah really deteriorated, but two new communities really emerged as big, thriving Jewish communities, Baltimore and Richmond. The time we have left, I want to move to one, you know, we talk about the American Revolution, and just from a purely American history perspective, you talk about the Revolutionary War, there really were two revolutions. There was the American Revolution, the War of Independence. The good guys won. After the war, Washington goes back home to Mount Vernon. And the, there are 13 countries who could not work together. There was really no confederation. It was very poorly connected. And historians like to think of the Second Revolution, which was creating a constitution. 
You know, if the story just ends with the American Revolution, there's no freedom of religion. There is no government that you know of, that we are the United States that we're, we know and love. The creation of the Constitution was a tremendous, was, one, was an epoch, and is a watershed in the history of humanity, and certainly in the history of American Jewish history. Mesil Sisharm talks about, when he talks about gratitude, he says an amazing thing. He says, we take a moment and we think of all the good that God does for each and every one of us. Every hour, every day. The wonders, the miracles. We would think about all the goodness, the kindness, the blessings that we have. That would be a, the biggest motivator, says the Messiah Sasharim. Rabbi Lutzato, writing in the early 1700s. It's the greatest motivator for us to feel a sense of duty, responsibility, obligation, connection, and growth spiritually. It's when we focus on gratitude, on our appreciation. The problem is, is oftentimes, I would argue, the great killer of gratitude is entitlement. We live our lives, life is kind of how it is. Freedom of religion. First Amendment rights. You know, people think that the country is falling apart and anti-Semitism is on the rise and we live in a horrible time. And of course, anti-Semitism is on the rise and it's worrisome and it's problematic and we've talked about it a lot. In 2023, the United States of America is the safest place for a Jew to be in the history of the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. And we have to appreciate that. And we just go so accustomed to the fact that we have freedom of religion, freedom of worship, entitlement, the establishment clause, the government can't persecute us, can't establish a religion. We take these things for granted. That's not been the story of Jewish history the last 2,000 years. And we can't just, well, it's been like this our whole lives. We can't take it for granted. And when we talk about the Constitution, we talk about the founding of this country. So yes, we have to have a karasatov gratitude to the framers of the Constitution, to all those guys. The Washingtons, the Madisons, the Jeffersons, the Adams. Wonderful. Mazel tov. Thank you to all of those. But really, our gratitude and appreciation has to be directed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to God in heaven, for enabling that to happen so long ago, because guess what? It directly impacts every single person here in this room. When the Constitution was developed, written, and debated, there was a big debate, would the Constitution be ratified? And if you look in Article, I don't know, 4, 5, Article 5, one of the articles in the Constitution, it talks about the process of how the Constitution would be ratified. And it says that basically three-quarters, once three-quarters of the states, nine states, said, voted, that we're ratifying the Constitution, it's now binding on everyone. That's great. But Washington really, and Washington was going to be elected the first president, Mazel Tov. Washington really wanted it to be unanimous. He really felt, look, if we're going to start, we're going to really have a country, and there's one, country, one, one of these states doesn't really want to be part of it, and they're just being coerced into it. He says, we're not starting the country on the right foot. And there was one great last holdout, state of Rhode Island. State of Rhode Island was not interested for whatever, it didn't. And Washington really applied pressure that they go and they ratify the Constitution. And eventually they kind of decided, okay, they, they consented, they're going to ratify it. And sort of as a quo pro, quid pro quo, quo whatever. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Washington told the people of Rhode Island, basically told the leaders of Rhode Island, that he would go on a tour of Rhode Island together with Jefferson and all the big boys, and they would visit Rhode Island. And he did. And in August of 1790, he traveled with Jefferson, George Clinton, uh, uh, John Blair, and a couple others, and they traveled through New England, and they made, stopped in Rhode Island. 
Leading citizens in May 29, 1790, leading citizens of Newport, Rhode Island, and representatives from many religious denominations present in the city were amongst the group greeting the new president. And Moses Satius, who we mentioned earlier, his brother, Gershon Mendes Satius, Moses Satius was the chazan of the Newport Synagogue. And on August 17th, he wrote a letter to George Washington, reflecting after Washington traveled and visited Newport. He wrote as following, letter to Washington. Permit the children of the stock of Abraham to approach you with the most cordial affection and esteem for your person and merits and to join with our fellow citizens in welcoming you to Newport. Stop right there. Fellow citizens. He's making an assumption. Were Jews fellow citizens? Are Jews citizens of the United States of America? The answer is yes. The Constitution would say that on a federal level, the Constitution would mandate that's the First Amendment. Now, it should be noted, that was on the federal level. Were Jews citizens of each state? So it wouldn't be till well until the 1900s where those laws kind of worked itself out, but many, many Jews were barred in various states. But they're sort of presupposing we're citizens. It wouldn't be till 1870 where Jews were actually welcomed into New Hampshire. 1870. With pleasure we reflect on those days, those days of difficulty and danger, when the God of Israel who delivered David from the peril of the sword shielded your head in the day of battle. And we rejoice to think that the same spirit who rested in the bosom of the greatly beloved Daniel, enabling him to preside over the provinces of the British, of the Babylonian Empire, rests and ever will rest upon you. Deprive as, he, as we heretofore have been of the inviolable rights as free citizens, we now, with a deep sense of gratitude to the almighty disposer of all events, behold a government erected by the majesty of the people, a government... Um, a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no, dis no assistance, but generously affording all liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship, deeming everyone of whatever nation, tongue, or language equal parts of the great governmental machine. And the letter goes on. The next day, August 18th, my birthday, Washington wrote back the most famous letter ever in, you know, in American Jewish history. He wrote the famous letter to the Jews of Newport. It's read once a year, in that congregation. He wrote as follows. To the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. Newport, Rhode Island, 18 August, 1790. Gentlemen. Now, it's not in his handwriting. It was dictated. But these were his words. Gentlemen, while I receive with much satisfaction your address, replete with expressions, expressions of affection and esteem, I rejoice in the opportunity of assuring you that I shall always retain a grateful remembrance of the cordial welcome I experienced in my visit to Newport from all classes of citizens. The reflections on the days of difficulty and danger which are past is rendered the more sweet from a consciousness that they are succeeded by days of uncommon prosperity and security. If we have wisdom to make the best use of the advantages with which we are now favored, we cannot fail under the just administration of good government to become a great and happy people. The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. All possess a like liberty of consciousness and immunities of citizenships. It is now no more than toleration is spoken of, as it was her indulgence for one class of people, that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. Anytime anyone speaks about anti-Semitism, they quote this passage of Washington, that the government gives bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they live under its protection, should demean themselves as good as citizens in giving in all occasions their effectual support. 
It would be inconsistent with the frankness of my character not to avow that I am pleased with your favorable opinion of my administration and fervent wishes for my felicity. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in the land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of their inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vig, under his own vine and fig tree and there shall be none to make him afraid. Washington loved biblical language. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and everlastingly happy. George Washington. It's a very powerful letter and it's remarkable that here you have, you know, the first president, you know, writing a letter to the Jews of, um, of the United States. I want to just end with two last stories. The hour is late. You know, we talk about the First Amendment. We talk about freedom of religion. It's a really a remarkable thing. The United States Constitution was written in 1789. Had it been written in 1749, there would not have been a First Amendment clause. Had it been written in 1849, there would not have been a First Amendment clause. 50 years earlier, 50 years later. You see, 50 years before the Constitution, the United States was in the throes of the Great Awakening, a religious upheaval where you had religious fanatics, Christian fundamentalists, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. There would be no room for toleration of non-Christian denominations. The First Amendment would not have slipped into the Constitution. I am certain of that. Had it been written 50 years later, the 1840s, it also wouldn't have happened because the United States had a second great awakening of religious fervor and Christian rejuvenation. The nation would again have been too extreme Christianly to allow for the First Amendment. It just so happened that there was a brief donut hole of 50 years where tremendous men Men who were irreligious but tolerant of religion. Jefferson is a deist if not an atheist. Washington certainly had not real strong religious connections. Franklin and these people who were enlightened but not enlightened enough like the French that would you know, be anti-religious. And you have these great men, these men of character, these men of strength that allowed for first, the First Amendment to make, itself, to make itself into the Constitution. Again, we talk about Akar Satov. We talk about gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to God. Is it just a weird quirk of history, a coincidence, that it just so happens that the American Revolution, it just so happens that the writing of the Constitution happens to happen in the, during the large sweep of American history, the history of North America, during a quiet lull in religious fervor, but it wasn't, a lull enough that people were anti-religious, but there was actually a, a brief spasm of religious toleration. Had the Constitution been written 50 years earlier, 15 year, 50 years later, First Amendment would not have entered into the, into the Constitution. How did that happen? I'll tell you how that happened. The Ral Bagh tells us, you remember the story of Purim? The great story. And he says it's an interesting thing. You find there's a halacha, there's a law. We read the Megillah, the Purim story. He says, it's a law. You have to read it. You can't read it out of order. You have to read it in order. You have to read it in order. He says, of course, why would you think otherwise? Why is this like stressed? And he says, there's a toelus. There's a lesson to be learned. Our sages are teaching us. You know, the, the story of the Megillah, we all know crazy events. All these wacky things happen. 
He says, had they not happened in the precise order, all these random coincidences, had they not happened, if you delete one of the sub-stories from the greater story, the whole salvation collapsed, and the Jews don't live happily ever after. You needed all of those events to happen. And says Robag, this is a, a lesson that we have to have gratitude for the hashkacha pratis, for the divine intervention on small details, on everything. Nothing happens by chance. You have to read the Megillah in order to remind ourselves, this came before that, and then this happened, because it was all orchestrated by God. Because had it not happened the way it did, we would not have had the salvation. And had the Constitution not been written when it was written, I am very confident none of us would be here today. I want to end with one last story. There's a famous story of George Washington in the menorah. Ever heard the story of George Washington in the menorah? There are many different tales and versions of the story of George Washington in the menorah. I'll read one of them that I came across. For centuries, the light of the Hanukkah menorah have inspired hope and courage. They may have also been responsible for inspiring then-General George Washington to forge on when everything looked bleak and cold in the hungry Continental Army camped at Valley Forge in the winter of 1777-78. The story is told that Washington was walking among his troops when he saw one soldier sitting apart from the others, huddled over what looked like two tiny flames. Washington approached the soldier and asked him what he was doing. The soldier explained that he was a Jew, and he had lit the candles to celebrate Hanukkah, the festival commemorating the miraculous victory of his people so many centuries ago over the tyranny of a much better equipped and more powerful enemy who had sought to deny them freedom. Very similar to what Washington was dealing with. The soldier then expressed his confidence that just as, with the help of God, the Jews of ancient times were ultimately victorious, so too would they be victorious in their just cause for freedom. Washington thanked the soldier and walked back to where the rest of the troops camped, warmed by the inspiration of those little flames and the knowledge that the miracles are possible. There are different versions of the story, and the follow-up story of the story usually ends with years later, knock, President Washington knocks on the door of this soldier and gives him a menorah, a silver-plated menorah. Some have it. They give him a silver medallion with a menorah etched on it. The story never happened. It's a legend. It's at best Torah Shabal Pet. It's probably a legend. This story, there's no historical evidence that it happened. I, I'm very skeptical that it happened, personally. You know, we talk about Hakara Satov. We talk about gratitude and appreciation. And I am a big believer that we have to have appreciation to Akkadosh Baruch to God, that here we are in the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave, and we're able to, it's something we, unfortunately, so many Jews take for granted. You know, the freedoms that we have here. We can study Torah. We can come to Shol and Davin and pray. We can come together at the Kolel and have a class. This is unprecedented. Economically, the fortunes that we're able to amass. And it didn't happen by mistake. It happened because God, for whatever reason, wanted the United States to be founded. My rabbi would always talk about you know, these crazy troops in 1776, these mishagayim, these lunatics throwing tea over the sides of the boats. He would always talk about their rusty muskets. It's an unfathomable, it shouldn't happen. I always, I, many of you know, I love American history. But I don't just see it as a bunch of stories. I don't see it as a story of, of American history. I see it as a manifestation of God's hashkacha, of God's divine intervention. Rabbi Beryl Wine is a great historian. Lives in Israel. Shall live and be well. He has a fascinating, very insightful thing. He talks about legends. There are a lot of, in Judaism, we have a lot of legends. And a lot of them are probably not true. He has a very, very insightful thing. He says, 
yes, we have to know hist historically MS and Shakar, if something didn't happen, we need to, or it's debatable or doubtful that it happened, we shouldn't accept it as a truth, of course. But he says there is a value in a legend. He's, he says it doesn't really matter if it's not true because usually legends tell a story. They paint a picture. It could have happened. When I read that story of, of Washington and the menorah, I doubt it happened, but it doesn't surprise anyone in this room if it could have happened. If I told you it did happen, like, oh, that's, that's inspiring. The fact that we live in a country where the founding president, the greatest American, you know, that story, it didn't happen, but it could have happened. It should really motivate us, as Masil Sharm says, when we think about all the tovos, the nisim v'neflos, we were, the miracles, the wonders, and the goodness that we have here today. It didn't happen by mistake. It took almost a quarter of a millennia of miracles, of hashkacha pratis, of God's divine intervention, of unusual weather patterns in New York 247 years ago, a sequence of remarkable events for us to be here today. And let's not take that for granted. Let's have the Hakar Satov, the gratitude and appreciation to God for all the goodness that he's done for us today and for all the goodness that he had to orchestrate over the last 250 years so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we do today here in the United States of America. I want to thank you all for coming. Wish you all a good evening. And if you want to stick around for any questions, I'm here to answer any of your questions. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.